good morning, everyone, and good morning to our online audience as well. My name is Fred Kemp. I'm President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Uh, and thank you for joining us at such, for such an important discussion. Uh, it's uh, the first of the year in a series we've been pursuing America's role in the world, and the first, of course, since the uh, inauguration of President Trump. Uh, in a moment, we'll hear from two of the top congressional voices on U.S. foreign policy and national security. Uh, Representative uh, Brad Winstrup, uh, a uh, Republican from Ohio, and Representative Seth Moulton, Democrat from Massachusetts, both of whom sit on the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, and uh, more importantly, uh, both of whom take to the House Armed Services Committee a background of military service. Uh, Karen Atiyah of the Washington Post will introduce you, Congressman, and, uh, uh, and share more of your background. Uh, but I really want to salute all of your public service. Um, and uh, and you'll, if you'll forgive me, uh, Congressman Moulton, um, I'm also sending greetings um, from uh, General Petraeus, a member of our board who you served. Uh, uh, I don't know, you had four tours in Iraq. I don't know how much of that, you, two of them under him. Um, uh, we're hosting this event for a multitude of reasons, but two stand out. First of all, the Atlantic Council believes that we're at a turning point in history, a defining moment in history, maybe as important as the end of World War I and the end of World War II. And America's role in the world was quite different at the end of those two wars, and the outcomes were quite different because of that. Much better at the end of World War II, much worse at the end of World War I. We believe uh, that uh, U.S. engagement with friends and allies around the world will be determinative of how well things go this time around as well. And in fact, that's a lot of the mission of the Atlantic Council, to galvanize working together in the world to secure a better future. Uh, we believe there's also a need to hear more opinions and foster more debate across the United States on how the U.S. can navigate this turbulent world from, uh, from those leaders um, by, elected by and representing the people of the United States. So we want to have the debate uh, uh, heard from uh, members of Congress coming here. And then, of course, we as the Atlantic Council want to reach out much more across the United States to hear views there as well. While administration officials play a critical role in this area, if there's one thing we learned from the latest election is that the American people are speaking with a louder and more powerful voice than ever before. We believe it's imperative for the Atlantic Council to provide a platform uh, for those people who they send to Washington rep to represent them, to speak, debate, and share viewpoints. That's why in this series we've hosted, among others, House uh, Armed Services Committee Chairman Mac Thornberry, House Armed Services Committee Ranking Member Adam Smith to speak on defense strategies, uh, Senate Armed Services Committee Member John Do uh, Joe Donnelly to discuss how America should care for veterans, and then presidential candidate and still Senator Lindsey Graham to present his vision. Not least, we also uh, previously hosted uh, Representative Moulton for an address on grand strategy where he said America should be no greater uh, friend and no greater foe, uh, adopting the doctrine of our now Secretary of Defense, but then Marine General Jim Mattis. Another driving force behind the series is our team, um, the Foresight Strategy and Risk Team of the Brent Scowcroft Center here at the Atlantic Council run by Matt Burroughs. This team looks out beyond the near term 
out beyond the 50-meter targets uh, to address the long-term trajectory of challenges, threats, and opportunities, and work every day to encourage a more substantive and constructive dialogue. Toward this end, and to complement this event series, we launched uh, the Atlantic Council Strategy Paper series. And I strongly recommend you all read our flagship report that came out last year, Global Risks 2035. It details how the break breakdown of the post-Cold War order, the unraveling uh, uh, in some Western democracies, and also the new threat of major power conflict, which was unthinkable a few year years ago, not likely, but still on the horizon again, uh, have changed our, our outlook looking forward. Uh, later, we'll release a strategy to address these challenges and opportunities associated with the risk environment. Um, I also urge you to go to our website, AtlanticCouncil.org, to look at some of the other papers. Most recently, we've put out a strategy paper on Latin America, on Africa, and non-state strategy for saving cyberspace. All of this uh, engineered to help uh, a new administration think through the many uh, issues that are going to come at it. One last point before I call the congressman and our moderator, the Washington Post Global Opinions Editor, uh, Karen Natia to the stage. I want to be sure to mention that we are live tweeting this event in the tradition and the spirit of the moment uh, uh, from the, uh, at AC Scowcroft account and using the hashtag AC strategy hashtag. So please join the discussion on social media. And so with that, uh, my thanks to the three of you for being here today and Karen, turn over to you to get us started. Thank you so much uh, for, for that introduction, and thank you to the Atlantic Council um, for having me here um, for what will prove to be, I think, a really interesting um, discussion on, on foreign policy. Um, as Fred mentioned, um, let me reduce the interference here. Uh, um, as mentioned, yes, my name is Karen Atia, and I am the Global Opinions Editor at the Washington Post. Um, it's a brand new initiative um, that we have on the opinion section, so speaking of opinion and debate, basically our aim is to try to get more commentary and more analysis um, about the world from around the world. So in an age where, you know, some might say of increasing isolationism, um, we want to still keep that conversation and that debate open um, about what's going on in our world and helping our readers um, both um, here in the United States and abroad to help uh, to, understand, um, to understand our world. So again, this is um, a really great opportunity to be able to engage with uh, U.S. Uh, lawmakers on some of these issues. I know we don't have a whole lot of time, so I'll just get straight into the introductions okay. and then we can jump straight into the questions and the discussion. So to my immediate left, um, Congressman uh, Brad Winstrup, uh, who's the representative of Ohio's 2nd District and has been since 2013. He serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the Armed Services Committee, and the Committee for Veterans Affairs. Um, he is actually a doctor as well, um, an Army Reserve officer, and he served a tour in Iraq as a combat surgeon. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Um, 
And then um, second, we have Seth Moulton, um, who is the representative for Massachusetts 6th District and has been since 2015. He served four tours in Iraq as a Marine Corps infantry officer, including tour two tours as special assistant to General David Petraeus. So again, thank you so much for being here. So I'll just jump straight into it, and I'll take this question to you first, sure. uh, Cong Congressman Wenstrup. Um, how would you today uh, define or characterize America's role and responsibility in the world? We're in a world where we have multiple threats from yeah. ISIS. We have a war raging in Syria. Um, we're in one of the worst humanitarian or refugee crises since yeah. World War II. Um, and beyond that, uh, climate change, and, and just a multitude of, of pressures, it seems, coming in from, from all sides. So in light of that, what is, what is our role and what is our, our responsibility? Well, I think since uh, World War II, it's been pretty well established that the world looks to America to lead, uh, to create stability in the world. Lessons learned from World War I, as was mentioned before or what we did after World War I and then World War II. And you know, we saw the US uh, role as being that of leader that we were uh, assurance to our allies in, in so many ways. And we saw sort of a world order that took place. I think there was unrest in those that were dominated by the Soviet Union after World War II. Uh, but, but there was an order in place at the time. Then you started to see unrest like uh, the Iranian hostage crisis. Mm -hmm. You saw things starting to emerge. Uh, you, you can remember uh, Ali North talking about Osama bin Laden and members of Congress didn't know who that was. Well, they certainly did get to know who that was. But, but over time, we, we saw the end of the Cold War and we saw in the 90s where Russia and the United States were actually engaging in military operations together, training together. And then you see Putin come in and change the direction of, of Russia more towards the Soviet Union. Our role is still to be an uh, assurance to our allies and like I said, make sure our foes know that we are there. And, and I think that that has diminished somewhat and that we have to gain that back. But there's, that role is not just with, with guns and weapons, it's what we're doing diplomatically, how we share intelligence, what we're doing economically around the world to either help or our, our friends or hinder our enemies. Mm -hmm. And uh, that takes us to lead. And, and I think that that's a direction we have to focus on if we're going to have a world order that's peaceful. Mm -hmm. Um, Congressman Moulton, how would you answer that question? Well, I think Brad did a great job, and you know it's an honor to, to be here uh, with you, Brad. It's a great My pleasure, pleasure to, uh, and privilege to serve in the, com um, the committee with you, especially as a fellow veteran. And I, I think Brad is exactly right. Um, the world expects America to lead, and um, you know, look, I was a I'm a Democrat who was sometimes critical of the Obama administration for not leading enough. Uh, you know, this phrase, lead from behind, is, that's not leadership, and I think that was wrong. Uh, I'm worried that the Trump administration is not going to lead from behind. They're just going to literally go home and pack it in, and that would be even worse. And so it's very important that as, as members of Congress, I think we come together in a bipartisan mm -hmm. way to say that this, this leadership is important. And uh, I also want to just double down on, on a point that Brad made about diplomacy. That leading is not just dropping bombs. Leading is leading with our, our, our diplomats, with our mm -hmm. aid, uh, and with our values. 
-hmm. and, uh, and I think that we have a lot of work to do uh, on all three of those. Mm -hmm. I will definitely come back to that issue of aid and development and diplomacy. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious, um, you know, uh, you're a representative from, from Ohio, mm -hmm. from, you're from Massachusetts. Just, uh, can you give a sense of what your um, constituents back home are, are saying about foreign policy? You're asking, what, is, what are their concerns? What yeah. are their fears? What are their worries? Um, and maybe also in that, in that answer, kind of describe, you know, what types of people um, are in your district. And sure. Mm -hmm. yeah, let, let me just build on something that Seth said. Okay. Uh, we, we have conversations often, and it's very engaging, and it's nice to have uh, some uh, common ground besides just uh, certain MSRs in Iraq is uh, <laughs> common ground. And we, I think that there's many things that we do look at in the, in the same way. As far as in our districts, is, and uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, you know, not everyone in our districts has the background that you all have sitting here today and the insights and, and the knowledge of what's taking place in the world. So I represent an urban area and then a lot of rural area. And really uh, what it comes down to in the district a lot of times is people just want to see uh, in, in essence, are, are, are we winning? And when I say winning, are, are we keeping the world and our country safer? It just comes down to that. And then how we go about that is much broader discussion. At the same time, I'll have some people that are sophisticated enough to talk about things like Kurdistan and the difference between the Barzanis and Talibanis, right? And so, uh, but by and large, it's much simpler and I think that we need to do a better job of breaking down in a simpler fashion for the average American what's going on in the world and what our role is in the world and, and similar to what America, I believe, was probably like during World War II where the message was clear of what we had to do and every American took a part in that process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't well, mean again, to go not a lot of disagreement here. No, I, look, I, I, again, I think Brad is. I, I, think, I think Brad is right. Um, people want to make sure that they're safe. They want to make sure our troops are safe. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, there's a lot of common agreement around that. So sometimes when uh, people ask, you know, why are we spending this money on foreign aid, or why why is the State mm -hmm. Department important, I, I bring it back to the fact that well, it keeps our troops safe. Mm -hmm. And what General Mattis said, that if you're going to cut the State Department, you get better give me more ammunition. And by the way, along with ammunition comes body bags and the kind of work that Brad had to do over in Iraq because, because more people are going to die if we don't have good diplomacy, if we don't have good diplomats out there mm -hmm. fighting their fight every day. Yeah. So, uh, so I think that's, that, that's really important, and that's something that people, people want to understand. Mm -hmm. and when, when you say people want more winning again is there an idea of, of what that even means and and what the like what does it mean for us to win or is it is it just uh you know a kind of nebulous feeling i guess i think i think they want to see you know something positive they want they want to feel that uh, efforts are making a difference uh, in the world mm -hmm. And, and that's probably as simple as I can, can put it. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you, you talked about aid there for a second. Uh, people want to know where their money's going. Mm -hmm. you know, I believe in the efforts of USAID. I believe in what we do in humanitarian efforts. Our job in Iraq, we were in charge of detainee health care. 
What did that mean? That meant taking care of the enemy, because the enemy didn't have a medical system in place to take care of them. They left them laying there. And our troops, and you know this, you'd go from a hawk to a dove in seconds. Mm -hmm. That's a hard thing to do. That's a, that's a mental challenge, but we did it. And then we would take care of them, because our job was to win over the hearts and minds of people that didn't know us, that had only heard one thing about us their whole lives. And I can tell you, we did it in many cases. But at the same time, there were people that we were taking care of that said, appreciate you taking care of me, but if I have the chance to kill you, I will. Um, you know, so people want to know, I think, what, what they're getting. And we have several roles to play in, in winning over people that didn't know us before. So let me just kind of illustrate that with an example. Sure. To go back to Iraq, there's a lot of, there will be lots of divisions and debate for decades, for centuries, on whether we should have gone in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I think everybody in America wants to see Iraq succeed at this point. And even if they don't want to see Iraq succeed because they care about Iraqis or they care about stability in the Middle East, they at least want to see Iraq succeed so that we don't have to keep going back there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what does winning in Iraq mean? Well, it doesn't mean just destroying ISIS, because we did that to, to al-Qaeda in Iraq, and then ISIS just came along, which was sort of Al-Qaeda in Iraq 2.0, mm -hmm. because we didn't provide that political stability. So I think that what winning in Iraq means is actually having a stable country that doesn't mm -hmm. require us to provide their national mm -hmm. security, that can provide their own national security. So that the Babylon Hotel, which was one of the first headquarters in my part of the country back in 2003, actually becomes a hotel again. And Americans might go and visit there mm -hmm. and see ancient Mesopotamia. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's succeeding. And it's going to take more than just a military effort. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you have to have to explain why that's the case, why it's not enough just to kill all the ISIS uh, fighters that are there on the ground mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. um, so speaking of uh, military, let's talk about one early and dramatic sign, at least, of the president's priorities for foreign policy, and that would be the budget and the preliminary um, news about the budget. Um, you know, the pre preliminary reports show that, you know, uh, President Trump wants to spend $54 billion more for defense, um, but that represents cuts to potential cuts to the State Department, to some of the initiatives that we've talked about, I mean, diplomacy, development, aid. Um, so, you know, what, as members of, of Congress, there's anticipation that this will create uh, definitely a, um, a fight, right? Um, so can you comment? Can you comment on that? On 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 what message does these numbers send not only to not only to Americans but to our partners and allies around the world? When yes, you're sitting here saying that um, we need diplomacy, lest we come back with more body bags. But the message coming from the White House is we're willing to hyper militarize our, our approach to the world. Um, well, I think Brad and I would agree that there are parts of our military that need more investment. Like what? Like uh, well, like so. Uh, I think on my second deployment to Iraq, my my sister put together a website because um, because a lot of people were reaching out and saying, "Hey, Seth, what does Seth need?" Mm. And uh, one of the things on the list I gave to her uh, was magazines. And so people started sending me, you know, issues of Time and um, you know the New Yorker and all sorts of conservative magazines too. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, and, and no, 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 no. Th those aren't the kind of magazines he needs. 
needs magazines for oh. his M4 <laughs> because the ones provided for the government are terrible. Parts in the right place, though. Right? <laughs> Yeah. And so, so like, look, the troops on the front lines are not always getting what they what mm -hmm. they need. I mean, we had uh, uh, tens of millions of dollars of un actually hundreds of millions of dollars of unfunded requirements um, for IED protection uh, uh, in, in, in last year's budget. So, I, thought, I think a lot of times um, we're not always spending money in the right place. And there's of course this preliminary report uh, on a Pentagon audit that has yet to be completed that says that we could save about two hundred fifty billion five times what the president wants to uh, put into the, you know, additional monies the president wants to put into defense this year if we simply ran uh, the Pentagon more efficiently. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about a top line number. It's about where we can be more efficient and how we prioritize those dollars. But as you said, if this comes at the expense of the State Department, then it's, it's, not, it's not a recipe for success. It's actually a recipe for making our national security weaker. Um, couldn't agree more. Um, and I recently just did a video that, that basically, you know, said that. It's, it's, and not, it's not only the magazine, but the training and equipping. Mm -hmm. You know, we're seeing more accidents taking place, and training accidents taking place, and you're getting the reports of, of really not meeting the requirements of the, your hours in the air for pilots and things like that. This is muscle memory, folks. This is something you have to do over and over and over again to be, to be good at it, just like surgery is. And, uh, and that's the expectation that we, we need to have for our troops. Uh, you know, you're on budget. You know, we can talk about how we really kind of fudge things in the past with OCO funding, right? You know, we put in overseas contingency operation funding, which sort of filled some gaps that the budget was was falling short on. Agree 100%. We need to we need to audit and look at where we are wasting money. You know, somebody brought up the point one time to me. Well, the Pentagon was built when everyone was using typewriters. You know, so is it really the same need? Do we have to have every office filled? I don't know that we do. When we look at acquisition, right, the process is so complex. Is it really the best way that we, we, we're doing things or are we making it too bureaucratic and then therefore hurting the warfighter? Uh, cutting state, I agree with what Mattis had to say. If you're going to cut state, then you're going to have to increase the bullets. That does translate in, in, into body bags. And something that uh, we have discussed is if we as a nation don't start addressing mandatory spending that goes out the door uh, regardless, then we're going to be in, in bigger and bigger trouble because what is getting squeezed is our defense. And this is just the reality of where we're heading as a country. 50 years ago, mandatory spending was 34% of the budget. Today, it's 68 and rising, and I think they estimate 78 in 10 years. That's less and less for defense and other things that are vitally important to us, like health research, et cetera. So uh, we got to make some changes, and uh, that, that has to be addressed. I don't know if we're on that path in the immediate future. No, I mean, Admiral <clears throat> Mullen, I think, was the one who said that the greatest threat to national security in the United States is, is is the U.S. Congress and our, and our budgeting and our unwillingness to mm -hmm. come to terms with the reality that we face. Mm -hmm. and you cannot balance the budget on the back of dis discretionary spending. Mm -hmm. The math just doesn't work. And so if that's what the administration claims they're going to do, it's going to fail.
And at the end of the day, it's going to hurt our national security and it's going to hurt our warfighters. Mm -hmm. You guys seem already to be pretty kind of uh, on the same page so far, at least about a Let's lot of Let's find some places. Yeah. <laughs> well, you no. trying to give us a fight on something here? No, I'm, just, I'm just noting with, with, uh, you know, with glee and delight that so far, at least, um, you know, it, it, we appear to have a very kind of bipartisan uh, uh, compromise here on this stage. I think you least. find that more amongst <laughs> veterans sure. uh, okay. that have a, a common background mm -hmm. and, and, and I, I can't, we've had conversations, but I can't speak for you directly, but you know, I think we're both just two guys that one decided to serve our country uh, in uniform. And I think that is what has led to us being here in Congress. Mm -hmm. As opposed to some people whose dream was always to be in Congress, right. and the ones, yeah, but the, the ones who weren't, for instance. I mean, right. what are the what are the disconnects? I, I suppose. As well, that's far why as we're the leaders of our respective parties because we <laughs> work together so well. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we got a little too much hype there at the beginning. <laughs> <I think. laughs> but, um, but you know, but I mean, this is this is uh, particularly over the budget and particularly over. Um, our, our approaches, again, just for a lot of uh, people around the world, particularly after the Bush administration, it was this sort of um, kind of hyper-militarized uh, approach to, like, uh, every crisis in the world, there was a, a hammer, it seemed. And well, but look, you can make the same criticism of, of President Obama. Sure. I mean, a, a rock started to fall apart, and what did he do? He immediately sent troops in to fix it, mm. right? I mean, ISIS didn't just sweep in and conquer the Iraqi army. The Iraqi army put their weapons down and went home because they lost faith in their government. And so fundamentally, what, what allowed Iraq to, or what allowed ISIS to take over vast swaths of that country was, it was, in, was in large part a political failure. Mm -hmm. And yet the president's response was to send in a bunch of troops. He didn't increase the contingent at the embassy. Mm -hmm. He just sent in troops. Well, you don't fix Iraqi politics by training Iraqi troops. So I think that you can have bipartisan criticism on this. The problem I see um, with our new president is that he seems to be doubling down on this. You don't hear him talking about plussing up the State Department in the Middle East. You don't hear him talking about fixing or helping the Iraqis fix some of the uh, fundamental political problems there. Um, you know, helping uh, Iraqis achieve reconciliation. Which, by the way, we had to do that. When I was working for General Petraeus, that was part of the surge. Um, he spent as much time, uh, you know, working with the, the prime minister as he did working with our own troops. Mm -hmm. So that's got to be part of the equation. And I think it's been uh, a failure on both sides of the aisle to really recognize that and, and make it succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, um, th this can get emotional, I think, uh, for both of us when you... You fight a war and you win it. And then because of decisions made after that, arguably, we're back in the war. And you lose others. It was hard enough to lose some the first time. But when you think you've won the battle and then you're fighting again and in your head you think this may have been avoidable. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, we, the lessons of war have been that, and it, it, if you go back to Charlie Wilson's war, right? You don't walk away from what you gained in Afghanistan then. And, and he wasn't talking militarily, but how you helped that country. And uh, what we did in Germany and Japan after the destruction of World War II, you know, this, this is how you win overall. This is how you win the big picture. So when the guns stop, you're not finished. And I think that's the case that, that you're making.
And, it, and it's very hard to lose somebody in a, in a round that maybe was avoidable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I felt that way in 2003, too. I mean, I'm not sure that we should have been losing people in 2003 because we hmm. shouldn't have gone there in the first place. But then to double down on that, to, you know, the, the, the history of Iraq, of the Iraq War, I think is often mischaracterized because people look back and say, look at where we are today. The surge was a failure. And I don't think that's an accurate reading of history. I think the surge was actually very successful. Hmm. Uh, it, it led to a remarkable uh, turnaround in not just the war in Iraq, the military fight, but in the political situation. And Iraq was at a relatively governable place mm -hmm. in 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. But then when we pulled out and, and didn't just pull our troops out, although that was an important part of it, but we also pulled out our diplomats. I mean, the, the, the embassy in Baghdad, uh, when it was constructed, was the largest US embassy in the world because we knew Iraqis needed that political mm -hmm. support. They needed that mentorship the same way we provided it to, to the Iraqi troops on the ground. Um, but we gave up on that effort. Mm -hmm. um, and, and look, some of it was uh, a failure of the Obama administration. Some of it uh, was a failure of Congress to fund those programs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those programs were cut um, under GOP cuts in, co in Congress. So uh, again, it was a bipartisan failure. But the result is that now Americans are back dying in Iraq again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, we, and you know, the argument of whether we should have gone into Iraq or not, I mean, I did feel that like we liberated liberated 26 million people from a very bad person. Um, you still could argue uh, going in or not, but what we do afterwards and, uh, and what we continue to do forward and make sure we, we take the lessons we've learned personally and try to portray them into mm -hmm. the future uh, so that we don't make the same mistakes. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. um, so I want to move to, again, when we're talking about security and our allies, um, talk to um, members of the diplomatic community, particularly from Europe, who are quite worried about um, NATO, or in general, writ large, about um, our, this sort of move or sense to withdraw America from, you know, not just NATO, but multilateral organizations, um, threats of cuts to the UN. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, we can just start with NATO. I mean, as Congressman, um, for you, how much of a priority is the security guarantee for our allies um, in NATO? It's a huge priority because they are our allies and you right. have to stand up for your allies. And that's what uh, our division motto was in the first Marine Division, no better friend, no worse enemy. Mm -hmm. Well, the first part of that is no better friend. And I think sometimes we tend to focus too much on the no worse enemy. The, no better friend means the United States will always be there, that we'll live up to our promises and our agreement. It's the same reason that at a much lower level down on the ground, uh, Brad and I are both supportive of getting translators here who we worked with of translator immigration and, and pushing back against um, the cuts to those programs from Congress and the administration. Because those guys depended on us. We depended on them. I mean, we literally put our lives in their hands when we were overseas. Um, they were our intelligence service uh, sources. They were our translators. and their lives are now at risk. They're being threatened with death because of their work with us. We've got to stand up for them. Well, at, at a high level, that's true as well. And we've got to stand up for our allies in Europe because we've made that promise. And it's a promise important to keep not just for their security, but for ours. Because uh, if, if Putin sees that he can walk all over Eastern Europe and walk all over them, not just with tanks and missiles, but through the internet, you know, by undermining uh, their elections, then, then he's going to keep doing that here as well. In fact, he'll double down on it. 
because that's the way Putin, Putin, Putin acts. I don't think you stand up to Putin with acquiescence. I think you stand up to him with strength. And that's what NATO is all about right now. Yeah, so with, with NATO, I agree. And uh, we're stronger together than we are apart. And I think it's important for those, uh, the other nations involved with NATO to feel that they are a part of something. Um, I don't think that they, I think they take great pride in being associated with the United States and, and being part of something together. That, that was my feeling with it whenever I came across international forces that we were serving together with in Iraq. A great pride in actually being part of something with the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, the United Nations, that, that role is debatable. I don't, I don't ever want to see the United Nations um, dictating American law, for example, um, but certainly be a place for, for discussion, for diplomacy, for um, best practices, if you will, of, of how things should be done around the world. I think there's something to be said uh, for that there. Going to the... Uh, the, the interpreters, you know, we, we have fought this fight, and I believe you had personally, and I have too. Before I was in Congress, you know, I signed for a couple of gentlemen that were interpreters for us to come to the United States as their supervisor in the military. Been to my house, I've been to theirs. Uh, they're now in the United States. I had to weigh in a little bit as a congressman for one of them, because he intended to stay. But he got identified seven years later as having helped us, and they went to try and kill his family. Mm -hmm. So we got him here. He's now doing a residency in family practice in the United States. The other is a cardiologist at a major uh, state university. And their kids are bilingual and American citizens. It's a beautiful thing to see. And you're right. We lost two interpreters. You know, The next day you go, what happened to Sam? Sam went to visit his family yesterday. He didn't make it back. You know, they identify him you know, leaving, the, leaving the base. And you know, their lives are at great risk. Um, one of them got a Fulbright scholarship, and he said, I'm just hoping I can stay alive to get out of here to go and take that Fulbright scholarship in the United States. These are the things that help build nations together, too, by the way. And um, so uh, we were both a little upset when we saw, especially for us in Iraq, that you're, you're holding that program up? No, no, no. And I think mm -hmm. we both spoke out against that, mm -hmm. and that was, a, that was an error. Yeah. I mean, both of you speak with obviously a lot of passion and emotion with those you worked with on the ground, particularly in Iraq, the mm. translators, the interpreters. Again, speaking off of the news, uh, we have President Trump's travel ban and restrictions mm. on, um, on immigration from some of, some of these countries. Iraq was on the initial uh, iteration of it. Um, but again, I mean, these are a lot of times uh, from these countries, these are people who have been our partners um, in the fight against terrorism, um, who are potentially you know, being blocked uh, from coming here and being safe. I mean, um, uh, Congressman Moulton, you've been very outspoken um, against uh, the, travel, the travel ban. I mean, you know, how do you... Uh, as congressman, um, you know your take on it. I mean, what's what's the way forward to to uh, to challenge this from your perspective, uh, uh, Congressman Moulton and Congressman Tripp? I mean, mm -hmm. again, I mean, how do you square how do you square that with a policy that aims to potentially keep these types of people out of the United yeah. States? Well, first? I mean, yeah, I mean, look, look, let's just focus on the national security aspect sure. for a minute because that's mm -hmm. what uh, the president is focused on. Um, so we'll put aside the Constitution, we'll put aside our values, minor things, and we'll just talk about the national security piece. Look, 
I believe this dramatically weakens our national security for two reasons. One, because it is going to make it much more difficult for our troops to actually have that conversation where a translator, an interpreter, an intelligence source agrees to put his or her trust in us and vice versa. I mean, I had to have those conversations with the guys working. I remember one time when, when, um, when my translator, Mohammed, came to work in the morning and said, I can't work for you anymore, Seth, because my family's been threatened. Right. And I had to convince him that this job was so important, not just for us, but for his country, that, that he would keep, stay on the job. And, and ultimately, he agreed to do so because he trusted us. Well, those conversations aren't going to go so well today. Yeah. And the second reason is that ISIS and other terrorist groups are already using this against us. They're, they're using it to further their narrative, however false it may be, that America is at war with the Muslim faith. Now, look, President Obama did, took multiple steps to improve the vetting of refugees coming to America. And if President Trump wants to do that too, I'll be fully supportive. We all want the country to be safe. But it is a little strange that you have this executive order against a bunch of countries that, have, that um, from which we haven't had terrorist attacks. You know, what, why, why are countries uh, like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan not included in this? Um, if countries uh, that have not produced terrorists who have killed Americans here uh, are included. So there's just not a lot of logic, I think, mm -hmm. behind this. Um, look, people want to be safe. And if we were taking steps to make immigration safer, then I'm all for it. But if we do, if we take radical steps that will just be used against us and don't really improve our national security, then I think it's a big problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, re refugees already go through a 24-month, on average, I, have, I had a guy who took eight years, but on average 24 months to get through the screening process. You know, honestly, you've got to be pretty stupid if you're a terrorist who wants to go through that as a way to get to the United States. I mean, let me tell you, there are a lot easier ways. I won't list them right now, but there are a lot of easier ways to get to the United States than going through that process. So I think we've got to be, uh, we've got to be a lot smarter about this. Okay, we, well, we might have our disagreement here. Finally, yeah, yeah, It'll get to, get to where <laughs> we done want. My job. I, no, I agree with you 100% about Iraq, and especially for the interpreters. And I've been outspoken about that. And those those with green cards have been thoroughly vetted, and uh, I know that process from my friends that have gone through that process uh, that are that are now in the United States. Um, we do have an obligation to keep America safe. I didn't hear anything about the pause on the Iraqi refugee program when Barack Obama, President Obama, put it in place. And the reason he put it in place was especially because just down the road from me in Cincinnati, in Kentucky, they found two refugees from Iraq that were plotting an attack against the United States and garnering ammunition, and he put a pause on it. It wasn't a pause. He slowed down the process. But, however, he had that authority, so he, he used that authority to slow that process down. So now I sit on Intelligence Committee. The countries that were named, and I'm glad Iraq is off the, off the list, and I'm glad that we changed it. It was changed for green card and SIV, and so basically that question is settled, and I'm, I'm glad that that took place. But when it, when it comes to the others, these are the countries that were listed under the Obama administration as our highest risk. We also hear from our intelligence sources, this is part of their strategy is to engage in the refugee method and process to get into the United States. We hear this from our adversaries that this is part of their process. 
We've also heard uh, from the agency, CIA, FBI, they said we don't have a, a, as thorough of a process for vetting because the countries that we're talking about do not have much information. They don't have governments that are well established for us to have adequate source of information on the people coming in. So that makes the process even more difficult. Listen, I, uh, I, I believe in our values. This is, not a, this is not changing from our values. And I, uh, I went a few weeks ago and met with Syrian refugees in Jordan. And, and understand their place. What did, what did they tell you and what did you tell them? Well, uh, when, I, well when I met with them, you, you, you can see what has happened to their families. Mm -hmm. uh, one gentleman, for example, they, the Syrian army came in and cut off most of his nose and it's patched together and disfigured there. A couple of his kids live in safer places, but he had four children with him. And it was all because they claimed that he said that he wanted democracy in Syria. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's lucky to be alive. They also took the butt of their rifle and took it to his nose after they sawed it off. You know, th this is consistent with our values is to be a part of taking care of people that are in this situation. I guess in the bigger picture, too, is how do we turn this world around that they don't have to flee their own country? But well, I think that's right, but, like but look, I mean, it just doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, look, if, if it's consistent with our values to you know, support the enemies of terrorism, which are sort of by definition the refugees who are coming over here, then I don't see how this ban accomplishes that. And on top of it, I don't see how you're going to meet the requirement that you set out, which is that these governments have functioning, you know, intelligence services or whatnot in any conceivable time frame for this not to become not just a pause, but a ban. I mean, so in other words, what, what is the Trump administration doing to get to the point where and after 90 days, which is what the the ban, the, the pause, the ban, or whatever has been set out, um, that we are in a better position. Mm -hmm. What are those measures? Right. Well, they're responsible to for coming up with that. I, I I don't disagree with that, but you know, spell it out. What is it you're actually looking at uh, that you've now improved in this 90 days? And I think the second thing is that you know, when you when you deal with national security threats, as as, as we both know, you, you can never keep Americans. I mean, you, you you have to prioritize, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I mean, look. If we if if we really if our goal here is that fewer Americans uh, die tomorrow, then we ought to just ban driving, because a lot of Americans die from driving, you know. Or or just say you know you can't cross the street until everybody stops driving, right? We gotta we gotta identify where the threats are. And when it comes to terrorism, most national security experts agree that the threat to America right now is not from the refugee channel. It's actually from radicalization here at home. Mm. And so if that's the greatest threat, if the greatest threat is that people who are already in the United States, and we have countless examples of this, will self-radicalize, will be radicalized through the internet, then does this executive order help or hurt that? Does it make it better or does it make it worse? All right. But I don't think it's unreasonable to dig a little bit deeper into, uh, for example, people that are traveling back to places where our enemies are emanating from. So, no, look, it's not unreasonable at all. Let, but but, but the, let's do that. But yeah. let's, let's see what the plan is. But okay. the point is, and I think we would agree with this, our goal is the same. Be who we are as a nation, you know. Well, I got, I got the paperwork from my grandfather coming through Ellis Island. You know, that's who we are as a nation and always have been, and it's what makes America great. But at the same time, there's what steps do we take to keep us safe? And that's where people disagree, mm -hmm. but we have the same goal, uh, to keep us safe 
and be that nation. All right. That's right. So I'm being moderated, actually, oh, <laughs> as far oh. as time. Um, so I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but I did want to uh, take it to the audience. I know there's so much that we didn't get a chance to get to. Um, so I'm hoping we can have uh, maybe how much? Two questions. Oh, OK. Um, the lovely woman in the purple right here. Um, and if you could uh, very briefly Introduce yeah, yeah, I'm Modelli. Uh, Congressman, um, I really appreciate what you said about Iraq because under the Obama administration, everybody was telling them it's not enough only to kill ISIS uh, or the terrorists, but Maliki and his policies were the, was the problem, and not teaching up to the Sunnis and giving them hope. Now we have a situation in Syria where also you're fighting ISIS in Syria, but there's no. I mean, we don't know what the strategy is. Uh, to after ISIS, like who's going to hold the ground after Raqqa, uh, after the, the uh, Raqqa and um, uh, all the areas? Mm -hmm. Are you going to give it back to the regime or to Hezbollah? I mean, that's a big problem. So what's your understanding of the policy of the strategy in Syria after ISIS? Well, okay. well, uh, yeah, I think we can answer. Okay, well, first of all, I have to thank you for such a softball question. <laughs> Just how do we solve Syria? You know? <laughs> Great. Um, look, you've hit on the problem, though which is that I don't think we do have a political solution in Syria. We don't know what the end game is. And fundamentally, I don't think it's right to be asking Americans or anybody to risk his or her life uh, for an uncertain result. And when you go and you talk to these troops that are going into Syria and are risking their lives every day, and you say, what is the end game here? You know, how does this look in five months, five years, so that we're not getting in a cycle like we did in Iraq, where we just have to keep coming back to fight the next terrorist group. I don't know. Uh, and and that's, that, you, that, is my, that is my biggest concern of what we're doing in Syria today. Yeah, what do you I, th think? I think post-Raqqa is a big question mark, right? You know, and how do you uh, keep it from becoming a, a, a Kurdish-Turkish conflict as well? I mean, there's just this, this is a chessboard like no other, what we're seeing today. Um, you know, one of the things that I think that we need to do, and I think that you were really a, a part of uh, during your time of service, is, is engaging uh, with Sunni tribes mm -hmm. uh, in Iraq to be part of our team, um, to be part of the process moving right. forward, both in, in Iraq and Syria as, as we move forward. You know, I think the work that um, you did with, under General Petraeus uh, made a huge difference at the time. Um, engaging people to, to buy in towards being part of a peaceful uh, solution at the end of the day. Uh, I came away not being in Iraq during that time, and so you, you were there, what, eight, eight nine? Uh, eight, so seven, eight. Yeah. Seven, eight. Yeah, so part of the, part of the surge for sure. The, the, the citizenry of Iraq had more faith in the American troops than they did in their own country. Right. Yeah. Would, would you, did you get that feeling? Yes, I did, and that was a big problem. That was a big warning sign. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> All right. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, when you have, I mean, people are celebrating some of the Kurdish forces that are coming in to liberate parts of Syria. But at the end of the day, if they can't establish government, if they can't be trusted to run the city or town, then that's a very short-term solution, and it's not going to be successful. Great. Um, Going for geographic diversity here. Um, I'll take the gentleman in the blue shirt, right? Yes, 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 you. And if you could introduce yourself. Um. Hi, hello. Oh, sorry, uh, Tim Rideout, non-resident fellow at GMF. 
Um, I'm wondering about the, as far as, you know, diplomacy and on the home front, um, the president's rhetoric. And we've seen a rise in hate crimes. We've seen attacks on Sikhs. We've seen attacks on religious minorities. Is the Republican Party going to speak out against this? Because this is, translates directly into body bags. Because I, I used to believe in the Republican Party as a moral party, but I'm not seeing any moral leadership. Uh, I think that from, from the Republican Party, you, you are seeing, uh, you know, the Republican Party is the party that uh, sought to abolish slavery. And I don't think our values have changed in, any since that time. Um, you know, uh, it remains to be seen, uh, you know, it, how people talk, right? The way they message varies. Sometimes you have a smooth talker that's putting out bad policy. Sometimes you have a horrible talker that's putting out good policy. And sometimes you are lucky to have someone that's a good talker and, and good policy. And uh, uh, we can discern from there. But I th feel like I've always been uh, in the party that uh, wants to protect the unprotected. And, uh, and listen, I've said this many, many times. We've all come from somewhere else. There's very few in this country today that didn't come from somewhere else. And I want people to have that opportunity, and I want them to know that it'll be done in a fair way. When we have uprisings of, of groups uh, that are negative towards human beings, it's wrong. And I, I don't know where we haven't spoken out on that. I don't always like um, the way some things are said myself. Um, I don't like, in general, on both parties, things that are said during campaigns as opposed to what may actually be in their hearts. I mean, I think that question was directed to me. It was yeah. directed to look, my, look, sure. my, my, look when, when Brad stood up for uh, the Iraqi translators, for the SIVs and Afghan translators, that takes political courage because there are a lot of people in his party who disagree with that. And I think that writ large in the Republican Party, we need to see more courage to stand up uh, against some of the things the president is seeing. And you're seeing that from some people. You're seeing uh, Senator McCain, Senator Graham, for example, mm -hmm. uh, really being outspoken. Um, and holding the president to task. And I think they're on the right side of history. I think that uh, they're doing the right thing. Um, but we need more people uh, to do that as well. So my moderator is giving me the bat signal. Um, unfortunately, we have to end it here. Congressman Moulton has a very important uh, budget meeting Sorry. to get to. But again, thank you both so much for your time Pleasure. and for your insights. This is actually yeah. quite fascinating. We'll do it again. Thank you guys Thanks. for coming. Um, Thanks, Seth.